Once upon a time, a man fell into a pit and he could not get out. And a sentimentalist came by and said, Man, I really feel for you down there. And a rationalist came by and said, You know, it seems logical that if there is a pit, then somebody would probably fall into it. In fact, a mathematician came by and calculated exactly how the man fell into the pit. A news reporter came by and asked if he could have an exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist came by and said, you deserve that pit. His dad came by and said, well, you think your pit's bad. Let me tell you about mine. An optimist said, well, you know, things could get worse. And a pessimist came by and said, Things are going to get worse. But finally, God came by, and he got in the pit. This is the meaning of Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He had to be made like them in every way. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And the story of the man in the pit is its just a story, but I, I don't think it's fiction. Because, you see, unlike God, we don't do so well with people in pits. And Jesus told a story about a man in a pit, a man in trouble, a man who was beaten and left on the side of the road. It's really a story within a story, and, and as a church, we have looked at it rather carefully over the last few weeks. But I want us to look at it one more time, and I want us to see the story outside the story. And by the way, I'm not following what's in your bulletin. I got a call at 6 o'clock last night. <laughs> but I want you to listen to the story that we've been looking at one more time. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now we may think that this parable is the story. In fact, it's common for us to lift it out, pull it out, look at it all alone. But it is not a standalone story. The real story is much larger than this. In fact, 
This story is told because of the story prior to it. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Late one night when she was returning to her home, a woman named Kitty Genovese was brutally attacked by a man. And she tried to fight him off for over 40 minutes. She screamed, he attacked, and 38 people watched the attack from the windows of their homes and apartments. No one offered to help. No one even called the police. Who is my neighbor? 17-year-old Andrew Morville was sitting on a subway waiting for it to part in New York City when he was attacked by several men. And 11 riders watched as he was repeatedly stabbed. And even after the attackers left and the subway pulled out, not one of the 11 left their seat as Andrew lay wounded on the floor. Who is my neighbor? Eleanor Bradley was walking down the sidewalk of her own city when she just simply tripped and she fell. But she broke her leg. And so she couldn't get up. And she called out for help. She called out for 40 minutes. And everybody around her, shoppers, executives, students, everyone just walked around her, stepped over her. And finally, after hundreds of people had just ignored this woman on the ground with a broken leg saying, please help me, a cab driver saw her. He pulled over, helped her into his cab, and took her to a hospital. Who is my neighbor? This question, who is my neighbor, is what some have called supra-cultural, above culture. It's above space and time. It's not tied to uh, a, a gender or an age, old, young, man, woman, ancient, modern. It's supracultural. It spans space and time. And so, contemporary history or ancient times. The Jericho Road in Palestine or Preston Road here in Dallas. It really doesn't matter where or when. Apathy and indifference will give the same answer to this question. Who is my neighbor? It was Edmund Burke who said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. William Haig wrote, the opposite of love is really not hate. It's something much cooler, more pallid, and really much more cruel. The opposite of love is indifference. Now, this whole question of, of who is my neighbor was a very important one in the first century when this 
lawyer ask it? Because there was a wide range of opinions out there. Some took the text that it came from, which was Leviticus 19, verse 18, and they actually changed it to read, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And now that's not what it says. Another widely accepted view was, love your neighbor, the Israelite. And then, of course, there were some subgroups, like some Pharisees changed it and narrowed it even more, love your neighbor, the Pharisee. And then there were those who, instead of saying, love your neighbor as yourself, said, I have no neighbors. Love yourself. In my Bible, the heading over this story, and maybe in yours too, says, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's interesting to me that Jesus does not say this is a parable. No, he doesn't say it is. It could have been a report of an actual occurrence. And here's why I think that. For Jesus to tell a fictitious story that made the Jews look good, I mean, look bad, and the Samaritans look good, would be opening him up, himself up to the accusation, you just made that up, didn't you? But that's not the reaction he gets at all. I think it's very possible that some of his listeners, including this lawyer, knew the story. And they knew that such a thing really happened. And it's just as, just as real as the setting, is the setting of the story, because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was very dangerous. And this kind of story was rather foolish. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, 17 miles away. Jericho is 820 feet below sea level. And what that means is that in 17 miles, this road drops more than half a mile down. And the only way that could happen is for there to be lots of turns and twists and switchbacks. And there were plenty of places to hide, cliffs, caves, rocks, Lots of places for bandits to hide. A difficult road, a dangerous road. In fact, people familiar with the area seldom traveled that road alone. They traveled in groups. And so this man is either ignorant or foolhardy or both. In fact, I suppose we could say what people often say today, he has no one to blame but himself. He brought this on himself. And maybe this is why the people in the story are reacting the way they do to this man. In fact, I'd like us to think about, for a minute, the people in the story. Let's, let's list them. And how do they react to this man? Let's think about the thieves for a minute. For the thieves, he was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. And the story says they stripped him, beat him, left him. He was a piece of property. He was a source of income, easy cash. And that's all he was to them, a victim to exploit. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid. And so they did. They avoided him. They ignored him. In fact, when they saw him lying on the side of the road, they might have even remembered a scripture that said in Numbers 19, Whoever touches the dead body of anybody 
will be unclean for seven days. Now, they, they couldn't be sure he was dead, but he might be. So why risk it? Why turn him over to see? I mean, this is a very practical question. Why risk losing their turn of duty in the temple because of someone who created their own problem? And he'll probably die if he's not dead already. I mean, after all, what's more important? This very private role, this man in the road, or our public role in the temple? The first time that Pam and I lived in Memphis, the public school where Pam taught was being painted. And one of the painters was a single man. And uh, because of her connection to the painters, and I would pick her up at school every day, I met him. And we became friends. We had him over to dinner. His name was Alvin. And he was a painter, but he was also a plumber. And over the course of time, we studied the Bible, and Alvin was baptized. One Wednesday night, Alvin called me. And he said, Bob, I'm, I'm so sorry. I did not make it to the study tonight. And I, I, I need to talk to you about it. I said, okay, well, we can talk. And we got together and we talked and he explained uh, very, a very sorrowful look on his face that he was actually leaving his home to drive to the Wednesday night Bible study when his neighbor comes running out of her house and she said, Alvin, my pipes have burst in my house. And so he said, I'm sorry, but I, I stopped and I helped her and I missed the study. And he felt so guilty and he wanted to apologize. And of course, I reassured him, you did exactly the right thing. You made the right choice. And I'm grateful that his neighbor was not a nuisance to avoid. The next person to the lawyer who asked the question, this wounded man was a interesting problem to discuss. But when the problem that he wanted to kind of toss around in discussion became his problem he turned to this popular dodge he said let's clarify let's define terminology who is my neighbor you know one of the best ways to get nothing done is to talk a lot about it discuss it people love to talk about a problem as long as they don't have to work on the problem moving through the group to the innkeeper to the innkeeper, this man was a customer to profit from. Now, he helped the man. Yes, he did. But not because he saw him on the side of the road and felt pity and came to his aid. No, he was paid, and he was well paid. And so where do we stand? A victim to exploit, a nuisance to avoid, a problem to discuss, a customer to profit from. But finally, to the Samaritan, this wounded man was a neighbor to honor he didn't live next door to him he'd never met him but in that moment he became his neighbor in Jesus mind that's the story he's telling and I wonder if the listeners of the story who were Jews perked up when Jesus mentioned the Samaritan thinking aha this must be the villain in the story the Samaritan and how they must have been surprised when they learned that no, he is the moral of the story. 
This is where the lessons are learned. This is where we find out what compassion is. I like the definition by Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite authors. He said, compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside of somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be peace and joy for me until there's peace and joy for you too. And so what do we learn about loving our neighbor? What do we learn about compassion? I want to leave you with six lessons and four questions that challenged me. First lesson, compassion sees something. Verse 33, the Samaritan came as he traveled. He came to where the man was. Now the fact is, everybody on that road saw the man. But the Samaritan came to where he was. And he didn't avoid, and he didn't ignore. And no, he wanted to really see what was there. Maybe you've heard that modern version of Jesus' words, I was hungry, and you formed a club to discuss my hunger. I was naked, and you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you thanked God for your good health. I was homeless, and you delivered a sermon on the shelter of God's love. I was lonely, and you left me alone to attend church. You seem so close to God, but I'm still hungry and lonely and cold. Compassion sees something. Secondly, compassion feels something. Verse 33, when he saw him, he took pity on him. Again, it's possible that everybody on that road had pity. But the Samaritan leaves the company of the priest and the Levite. He begins to move to deeper and deeper levels of compassion. And he, be he begins on the same level with the priest and the Levite, you and me, but he doesn't stay there. He moves. In fact, he moves to a third lesson. Compassion does something. Verse 34, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And he moves from the level of awareness and pity to the level of personal contact. Verse 34, look at the, look at the words, touch, contact, involvement. There are six verbs of action here. He went he bandaged, he poured, he put, he took, he took care. Compassion is something you do. Fourth lesson, compassion costs something. Verse 35, the next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. He takes this further step, moving from contact to commitment, dependability, loyalty, he moves even deeper from commitment to now sacrifice because a fifth lesson, compassion risks something. Verse 35, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You realize what he's done? He's written a blank check and given it to him. Accountable, liable, responsible. 
And everybody is surprised that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. And finally, compassion means something. Jesus asked this question in verse 36, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man? And it's interesting that the lawyer cannot even say the word Samaritan. He says, well, I, I guess the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. I think the exact wording is important here. The lawyer had originally asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus now asked, which of the three was a neighbor? You see what he's done? He switched it on him. He changed the question. It's as if he's saying, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The real question is, am I being a neighbor to the people God is putting in my life? The lawyer wanted to discuss neighbor in a real general way, but Jesus is making him consider it in a very specific way. This man, this need in your life, when I thought about just what it means to live this question, I had to force myself to think of four questions I want to give you. I want you to be as uncomfortable as I am. And they're all questions about compassion. First question, does inconvenience stop your compassion? You see, this Samaritan, he's on a trip. I mean, he's not at home. He's not driving through his neighborhood. He's not in Samaria. He's not close to home. And so it's not convenient. It's not easy. But it didn't stop his compassion. Would it stop mine? Would it stop yours? Would I say something like, well, I don't know where the inn is. I've never been here before. I don't have time for this. I have people waiting on me. Does inconvenience stop our compassion or have we decided before we ever meet the person I will be a compassionate man I'll be a generous man I will be a kind person I will be an involved person have I made the decision what have you decided to be second question does surprise block your compassion you see the Samaritan stumbled on this man he didn't plan for this meeting. If the whole thing surprised him. And some people don't do well with surprises. What about you? How do you do with it? You know, I think if, if we think that it's all up to us, a surprise will be difficult. But if I can remember that it's all up to God, and then I can give myself... It's just a tool in his hands. And I will do better with that surprise. Third question, does unfamiliarity limit your compassion? The Samaritan didn't know this man. That he was nursing back to health a person with different customs and different viewpoints and different traditions. He's not like me, doesn't look like me, doesn't sound like me, doesn't think like me. Does that limit my compassion? 
Is it possible for us to get so wrapped up in our own insider language and traditions that we become uncomfortable with someone who's different from me? Jim Peterson wrote, Christians who keep to themselves, who do not experience this continuing influx of people who are just arriving from the dominion of darkness, will surround themselves with their own subculture. As such, a local body becomes increasingly ingrown, and eventually, communication with a man on the street is impossible. We become so unfamiliar that our compassion is damaged. The Samaritan's compassion overcame these barriers. Inconvenience, surprise, unfamiliarity. He overcame them. And I believe that with God's help, we can too. Last question. At what compassion level do you stop? Think of compassion as moving up a stairway to higher levels. We begin with pity. Everybody feels pity. You don't even have to do anything. And you can easily just turn off the, the source of your pity, what's, what's causing it. Or you can move up to the next level. Contact. Give your pity something to do. Something to touch. A place to work. But still, even there, your compassion, it can be easily managed. And even though it's on your to-do list, it's way down the list. I'll do that later. I'll do that when I have more time. Unless you move to the next level. Sacrifice. Here, compassion is allowed to change your schedule, to change your mind. Here, compassion has access to your time, to your talents, to your money, to your home. But only on the next level will compassion begin to look like Jesus. Risk. Jesus touched lepers. He visited Gentile territories. He angered the people who were like him, the religious establishment. He walked to the edge of the pit that everybody had fallen into, and he got in it. Risk. When I was a student in grad school, one of my classes had us read a textbook and I don't remember the title, but I remember the author, Howard Kleinbell. And I'm sure if some of our counselors are out here, you might have had to read him as well. And of all the things I learned from that book, which were many, one I'll never forget was a story he told. He said there was a man who had fallen into deep water. And he could have been foolish, could have been his own fault that he fell in. But he had fallen in, and he was in trouble. And a man came by in a boat, and he saw him in the water, and he said something profound. He said, you know, what you need is dry land. And nothing could have been truer or less helpful than that insight. What he needed was someone to get in the water, someone to get in the pit. You see, Jesus climbed in the pit. 
And he didn't just climb in to treat our sin disease. No, he contracted it. He contracted our disease so he could heal it. And that is why we thank him every Sunday in communion. And that is why we follow his example of compassion. This morning, as we have been calling you for several weeks to listen to the Lord of compassion and to let the first commandment of loving that Lord fuel the second commandment of loving your neighbor. And so this is really a message to our membership, to love your neighbor as yourself. If there's someone here that we can help you with the first commandment, to begin that story, that following the Lord your God, and to follow him into the waters of baptism and to begin that life, we want to help you with that. If you need to pray with people, you can come here, we'll pray with you, you can pray with our elders, or gather with friends in the audience and pray, however we can help you. Once you let that be known, while we stand together and sing.